You're listening to episode 74 of the It's a Monkey podcast. Um, this week we are not going to uh, broadcast a live podcast, but we're going to bring to you a fantastic interview that I did with Phil Leiben, who was the CEO of Evernote at the time. He's now um, working as a venture capitalist at um, uh, General Catalyst. Um, and uh, I chatted to him in January 2013. Super smart guy. And uh, he t- had some amazing insights and uh, shared an, an interesting part of his journey. Um, so we hope you enjoy this interview. And um, we'll back, be back with um, some live podcasts um, in the next couple of weeks or so. Thanks for listening. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. Beautiful day here in Sydney, Australia. I have a very special guest live on the line. He has been called the most underrated Silicon Valley star. He has uh, managed to build a company. <laughs> I can hear him laughing in the background. Um, he's managed to build a company that's raised uh, over $250 million. The company is four years old. It has more than 45 million users, over 200 employees. Its valuation is between $1 and $2 billion. Uh, he's, he has fascinating things to say, fascinating insights into the startup industry, into uh, entrepreneurship. I um, am lucky enough to have him at the, the end of the line in, in Silicon Valley. Um, Phil Libin from Evernote, thanks very much for joining us on the It's a Monkey podcast. Hey, thank you. It's a real pleasure to, uh, to be here. Phil, have you ever been to Australia? No, it's one of the great injustices in my life. Uh, one of the things that I'm most ashamed of is that I've never been to Australia, and there's really no, there's really no good reason. I really, I need to come, and I need to, I need to do it relatively quickly. It's only one flight away from the Bay Area. It is, and it's a short flight. It's only like 20 hours or something. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually <laughs> it's easy to do. It's no, it's, it's crazy. With all the there. traveling I do, I've been, I've been just about everywhere, and uh, that I haven't been to Australia is just, uh, it's, it's unsettling to me. So I need to make it down there very soon. Well, I saw your comments about the European startup industry, that it's got a couple of the elements being smart, creative people, hardworking people, but the early stage ecosystem is still just you know, not quite there. And I think Australia is in a very similar position to that. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, what we'll do is um, uh, we'll probably go over there and have, you know, start doing some hackathons and doing some outreach to local developers, local designers. We really just want... Uh, we want the most creative and energetic people to do stuff with Evernote. Uh, so we'll, we'll come to Australia and, and, and do that. Look forward to In it. In fact, I think, I, think, I think, you know, I should just, I should just make news on this podcast and just go ahead and say that I'm, I'm, I will commit to being in Australia at some point in, in 2013. I think it's going to be a New Year's resolution that I make. I'm not going to let another year go by well, without going to Australia. So you can check in with me in a year and see if I'm if I've lied about this. But. We'll definitely, definitely hold you to that, but please try and come in summer because in summer it's, uh, it's, it sounds like it's a mixture between the Bay Area and Hawaii, not that I've been to Hawaii. Um, yeah, that, that sounds good. That, that, that sounds like a plan. So summer is, is now, right, over there? Uh, summer is now. Okay. It yeah. goes from about December till about February, March. It's probably the best time of year to uh, head to at least Sydney um, is, is the best time for Sydney. Neat. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll make it out sometime in 2013, and uh, really looking forward to it. Terrific. Phil, you've called Evernote um, the global human memory extension or the cognitive 
prosthesis. What I like about that description is that you're not talking about tech, you're not talking about features, you're not talking about, about bells and whistles. You're actually focusing on the value and the impact it actually has on people's lives. And I feel that sometimes gets lost um, in particularly the echo chamber of the tech industry. Yeah, I, you know, I never really saw us as a technology company. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a computer programmer. Many of the people, many of the early people that ever know, uh, you know, were, but we never really saw this as, as making something that uh, that differentiated itself based on technology. We really just wanted to make a product that we could that we could use for the rest of our lives. So we we want Evernote to be a, you know, a lifetime product. And you guys have the claim to fame of being the oldest app. Um, and the Apple um, Store, as well as for the iPad. The yeah, well, we're definitely in, in. You know, we're in the first cohort. We're there on day one, so there's only 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 a few apps that were there on day one that are you know that are still around. And uh, uh, yeah, we we well, there was a strategy early on. We basically said um, uh, we're going to kill ourselves to get on all of the major new platforms on the day that they're released, so that we can piggy bank on uh, all of the massive. Uh, marketing money that the, the, the vendors and manufacturers, the platform companies are going to spend promoting all their new stuff. You know, we didn't have any money back then. We didn't really have a, we didn't have any advertising or marketing budget. So we thought, all right, let's just, uh, let's, let's kill ourselves to get on there on day one. And hopefully that'll mean a whole lot of uh, publicity and promotion. And so uh, it worked really well. So I'm glad we did that. So you guys are really famous for having presence on nearly every single platform how do you how do you organize the development teams internally as a matter of interest are they split by platform is there an R and d team that sort of wraps around all the teams well organize is probably too generous a word for it <laughs> um, i think um uh, we have uh we, we definitely have a a, a a a barely managed creative chaos uh, here uh, and it is it is multiple teams uh, so we have a few principles that we you know that we try to adhere to but the most important one is really that we don't like we know that we don't know how to do any of this perfectly so everything is an experimentation we're not dogmatic about stuff we don't have a particular methodology that we say is the right way to do things you know we we, we try to be as uh, as flexible as possible in our approach and and uh, measure the success of things and, and adapt so there's a few things that you know seem to be working out pretty well um, and that's uh, having small teams. So we, we kind of think that the, you know, the ideal number of people working on a product team is the same as the ideal number of people you want to have over at your house for dinner. Right. Um, you know, it's like six people, maybe six to eight people. Like if you have, you know, if you have eight people sitting around the dinner table, you can still have one conversation. But you know, as soon as you have more, like once you have ten people sitting around the t- dinner table, it's not really one conversation anymore. It's just too many people. So like somebody's off on the side having a little side conversation, that kind of stuff. And you know, product development really is it's like an it's like a six month dinner party, right? It's an extended, spirited, energetic conversation among a small group of people who are working together on something. So it's uh we have maybe nineteen, twenty teams. Uh each one is, you know, five to maybe eight people. Um and uh they build all the all the products. Uh and they compete with each other. Um you know, for, for good ideas or bragging rights, um, you know, they kind of leapfrog each other in terms of functionality. Uh, the other thing that we figured out works pretty well for us is we never strive for um, consistency. We kind of think that consistency is not a goal. Um, you know, the goal should be excellence. Because I think if you if you if you strive for consistency, what you wind up getting is um, you, know, you wind up getting everything being consistently mediocre. Like everything kind of becomes consistent because it's all sort of sucky. 
um, especially if you're building cross-platform. You know, so we don't use any lowest common denominator technology. We don't care about code reuse. You know, if any of you, to the extent that some of your listeners are, you know, developers or, or, or managers of developers, you know, code reuse is like this big holy grail. We just we couldn't care less about it. Like we don't try to optimize reuse of any kind. Uh, we really just try to strive for every single app being the best it could possibly be, and then uh, motivating the teams that way. And when the you know when the when the iPhone team comes up with something that's better than the Android team, then the Android team is motivated to, you know, to, to, to leapfrog over that and come up with something even better in the next release. So, are the the majority of your 200 or so employees are they develop, developers, engineers? Yeah. Um, well, I think we're up to about we're up to about 280. I think right. maybe closer to 300. And um, I think I think something like 60 or 70 percent are product so they're you know they're developers designers qa you know people making the product mm -hmm. uh, in some way really like almost everyone does there's relatively few people that that don't do anything there's like you know there's me there's a couple of other the higher management so like the the the, the dead weight is uh isolated you know i'm grandfathered in and there's a few other people but for the most part everyone's actually building products do you still code at all do you cut code I do a little bit. Um, uh, they don't really let me. They don't let me into the into the uh, source control system very much. Right. Um, so I, they don't let me write production code. But I do write. Uh, they let me play around with a you know with the reporting system and the stats because I think they figure you know what's the worst I can do. Uh, so I do wind up writing a bunch of the reports. I write. I write a lot of you know SQL queries. I spend a lot of time with 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 uh, you know pivot tables and analytics. And uh, I I produced most of the. Uh, I produced most of the analytics that, that, we, that we put out over the past few years in the early days. And uh, now we do have teams of people that are actual professionals at, at analytics that, that are doing a lot of that stuff. But I, I still, I still you know, write a bunch of SQL from time to time, if you consider that code, which you know, I do because it's the thing. So tell us about um, Evernote for Business. You, you guys have launched something earlier this month, and uh, I, I guess it's based very much on the fact that your your stats are showing that sixty percent, six over sixty percent of your users actually use Evernote at work, and most of those people are actually doing it on their own back, and they actually bought it themselves and bringing it into work. Yeah, we did, we just did a survey a few weeks ago, and it was two thirds, sixty six percent use Evernote at work for you know both work stuff and personal stuff. Uh, and the vast majority of those, I think, 85% of them are, you know, are bringing it in themselves. So they're not. It's not. It's not something that's sanctioned by the company. It's something that they they bring in because they like it. And we just thought, well, that's you know, that's how everyone at Evernote uses it. Like we all have Evernote accounts, and we all use it. And it's not really officially mandated, but we just use it to run the whole company. And we just wanted to make that a better experience. So, like everything else, you know, we really just we're building for ourselves. And we said. Um, uh, you know, now that we're close to a 300-person company, we still want to use Evernote to run everything. How do we make it a great experience for us? Um, and so we, we we set out to do that. We talked to a bunch of a bunch of users, a bunch of companies, and I think we, I think we came up with something that's a very good start for you know for Evernote business. So the main idea is, um, you know, it's Evernote. Uh, it's just Evernote that that plays well at work. It makes it uh, makes your experience of using technology at the office uh, as good as it is outside of the office. I first heard you talk. I think it was on Jason Calacanis's um, regular show, and I've, 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 I've good, old, good old Jason. He's he's done great things for the um, startup industry. I just just love his energy. Even yeah, when I listen absolutely. to his, his podcast, I just I just want to start another company after after listening to him. But what strikes me about some of the the most of the talks I've listened to you um, give you sound 
you sound incredibly relaxed for someone who is running a business that's you know having high impact and raising money and staff and all and all those things that's part of the entrepreneurial roller coaster. I mean, are you a relaxed person or do you just sound relaxed? I think maybe you're just mistaken exhaustion for right. for, for relaxation. I think maybe you're just picking up on you know on, on, on extreme levels of sleep deprivation. And, and maybe that's coming across as being mellow, uh, but yeah, definitely, uh, it's definitely a very, very um, intense process being at Evernote. Uh, everyone works really hard. Uh, the, the stakes are incredibly high. Um, it is. It turns out it's far more stressful to uh, to be at this stage of the company that we, now that we've had a little bit of success. So this is actually far more stressful than than when we were tiny and about to fail at any given day. Um, and so there's there's quite a lot of pressure here, and I think uh, I probably respond to that, you know, in a, sort of my best Spock-like manner, and try to de-emotionalize everything and and, uh, and be relatively even-keeled, just because there is there is so much stuff going on. I kind of see, you know, I kind of see the job of the CEO is to be a you know a, a drama sponge, right? I need to I need to soak up all of the drama. I need to soak up all the risk. I need to try to shield the rest of the team from as much of that as possible to just let them. You know, let brilliant people focus on being productive and not not stress out. So I just kind of try to soak all of that up, and uh, I wouldn't be doing very very good job of that if I was always running around, you know, with my hair on fire. So how do you? I mean, do you have any strategy for downtime? Just getting a little bit of insight into into yourself. I mean, how do you decompress and get the the yang to the ying, so to speak? Well, you know, I um, I made a kind of a big breakthrough myself when I realized that uh, I was just going to stop trying to ever not work. Um, you know, I'm, this is not necessarily, generally necessarily good advice for everyone else, but, you know, I'm the type of person that uh, I would hate it. Like whenever I would go on vacation or, or whatever, people would always tell me, like, oh, you got to relax. You just got to turn off. You got to, you know, you got to decompress. You can't work so hard. And what I realized is like, bullshit. No, I don't. Uh, it's actually more stressful for me to be trying to you know, to, to to be trying to please other people's uh, and live up to other people's expectations of of uh, of, of downtime, and uh, I'm actually never more relaxed than when I'm being productive and when I'm getting something done. And it's like being away from work is deeply stressful to me because I just, you know, I just I don't know what's going on when I'm not there. So um, I think I suffered quite a bit. Uh, like like I think probably a lot of people do, where you know you're sort of forced to to unplug. And then a couple of years ago, I just realized. You know, screw that. I don't. I don't have to do this. I don't. I don't have to ever be off. I can, if I want to go on vacation and still be on email six hours a day, no one's gonna, no one's gonna tell me not to. Uh, and that's actually helped quite a bit. Like now, I just, like, I, I'm not, I'm not operating under any delusions that, that I need to have anything other than, you know, productive time at work. Um, so that's pretty much what I do. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always on. I'm always, I'm always doing something. But, but I love doing it. It's, it's, it's my life's work. Why would, why would I ever want time away from it? And you've spoken a lot about how your vision is to have a hundred-year company, um, y- you know, and, and look at the long term. And any technology company, um, you, you noted, really is not a short-term play. But then you also talk about, you, you, know, you know, that in a few years you would like to list. How do you plan on consolidating those two tensions? Because the short-term, I mean, the, the, the stock market is... is incredibly fickle and incredibly myopic and yet you still want to have your hundred year company vision are they going to be sympathetic to that i hope so um that's definitely uh that's definitely one of the one of the big risks and unknowns um you know i do think that um 
I want to be a public company at some point. Um, and, and I really think about that more, almost in moral terms. Like I think it's morally correct for us to be a public company at some point because uh, you know, we're, we're asking the whole world to trust us with their memories. We're, we're, we're asking people to, to build up this, this, this fundamental level of, of trust uh, in Evernote. And so you want I that accountability just wrapped around you as much as possible, as tight as possible? Yeah, and and, uh, and frankly, if, if if we ask everyone in the world to trust us with their memory, I want everyone in the world who feels like it to have the opportunity to be an owner of the company. So I, I think it's a I think it's morally correct to be a public company, um, and uh, and I want to do the right thing. Um, I just don't want to do it right now. I don't. I want to. I want to delay. I want to put off uh, the day of going public for you know a reasonable amount of time because uh, we're just having so much fun right now. Like this is the most fun time in the company, right? This is the time where you can really. You know, we can really innovate. We can really take risks. We can we can fail a few times. Um, you, know, you can't really do that when you're small, right? Like you can't when you're just a tiny startup and and you can't afford to take risks. I mean, other than the one massive risk that you're taking by by being a startup, you can't really do anything else. Um, and then when you're a big public company, you get punished pretty severely for failure. Uh, so I think like the the Goldilocks moment for us is right now. It's uh, you know we've big enough to have resources to take some risks to do some crazy things to to fail a few times and you know not get not get crushed by it by, by public markets so i, I kind of want to i'd like to do this for a few years uh really get you know be very innovative be very uh, uh be very b very friendly towards towards risk taking and then uh, once we've once we've figured out a few more things you know in three or four years maybe go public at that point what, what what type of crazy risks are you thinking of? Is it type of the companies that you'll acquire? Is it um, just you know pushing the envelope in terms of the product? Yeah, I mean you know everything we do. I mean on the one you know, uh, um, Evernote business, right? Like the the fact that we've said, hey, now we're going to do we're, we're going to sell business software, but we're going to do it with the same exact point of view as as as, as we've always done, as, as with the consumer software. So we're we are building business software, but we stand completely and 100% on the side of the end users. Um, and uh, you know, we are, we are taking a public position about how companies ought to use it. You know, we have a point of view about uh, um, what the right way is to to run a company, uh, and that point of view is directly reflected by by our software. And um, it's not going to be a good fit for companies that have a fundamentally different point of view about you know how much you should trust your employees or uh, how to motivate people. Uh, and I think if we were a large public company, you know, once we started selling something, I think there'd be this tremendous pressure to sell as much of it as possible, regardless of, you know, whether or not it comports to our to our general philosophy of how the world ought to be structured. Uh, and right now we don't. Right now we can we can still afford to make something, and we can try to make make it really great and say, hey, if if 50% of the companies in the world don't want to buy it because it's just not a good fit, then that's fine with us. We don't have any pressure to 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 accommodate that. Um, you know, this international stuff. You know, we opened up offices in several countries uh, this year. We're going to do more next year. Uh, that's that's always a big risk. Uh, that's always a big unknown. So I think you know, we, we we I don't think we do anything that's um, that's reckless. I think we we very carefully consider everything. But we we are willing to do things where we expect that you know, roughly a quarter, roughly 25% of things that we do, we kind of expect to fail, and we expect to fail pretty spectacularly. Because if, you know, if we're not failing in a quarter of the things we're doing, then we're probably not, right, we're probably not being ambitious enough. But when you're, when, once you're a big public company, can you really afford to have, you know, big public flameouts, you know, in a quarter of the things you do, you probably can't. Um, so. Dick, Dick Costello, the current CEO of Twitter, um, made some mm -hmm. interesting comments about the tension between focus and taking risks. 
and as a CEO, just trying to get that balance right or taking these two approaches, whereas Amazon, in a way, just you know, took risks, but other, other companies have chosen to, to focus deep and hard on their specific product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, Dick and, and, and Jeff are both uh, they're both genius, uh, you know, visionary uh, people. Uh, they've done they've done pretty amazing things, and obviously, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon has been willing to, you know, he's been willing to walk in the desert, right? As a as as a public company, he's willing to go and tell investors, we're going to do this thing, and it's not going to bring us any money for years, and we're just going to do it. And he just barrels through it, and he does amazing things as a result that no one would have expected. Uh, things totally not, you know, not obviously in line with with the core strengths originally. You know, all of the all of the cloud services that they've kind of invented. Like, where did that come from? You know, what does that have to do with selling books? And yet they do it, and they do it, and they change the world. So that's uh, it's a really inspiring thing. And I think uh, I think uh, um, you know Amazon's uh, performance, Apple's performance, a few of these companies really are the exceptions to what I'm talking about. They're the exceptions to, you know, when I say that big public companies are loath to take risks, there's obviously great ones that, that aren't afraid at all that take big risks all the time. But, you know, it's one thing to say that, uh, you know, Tim Cook and Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos can do it. It's very much another thing to say that I can. Well, <laughs> well, I think, uh, yeah, I, th- I think others would disagree. Uh, you, you seem to be doing, uh, you know, terrific things um, w- with your company. Your, your API... Um, you guys seem to, it's not many people, not as many people that I thought of are actually aware that you guys have a very, um, you know, open API and people are developing around it. Yeah, and we're, it's something that we're going to be um, much more vocal about uh, in the next year. We have about 20,000 third-party developers, so it's, it's a pretty good community. But since, you know, we're not fundamentally social, um, I think we just get, you know, I think in general, we we, we, we aren't a viral company, right? We don't. We don't do things uh, that 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 spread virally. We don't, you know, we don't. There's not a lot of hype around what we do. So everything at Evernote is about uh, very steady, measured growth, um, which which gets the pretty big numbers. You know, 20,000 API developers, I think, is is pretty good. Um, uh, and uh, but we are going to be making a big deal about it uh, this year. I think one of the unique things about our platform. Well, really about our business model. I mean, this is this is the thing about the Evernote business model, which I think is really kind of magical. Which is, um, you know, it's it's no conflict and no tricks. Like we have a we we have a direct business model, which means that we only have to please one one party, which is our, our, our customers, our users. We don't, you know, we don't have to please advertisers. We don't have to please partners. We don't drive affiliate traffic. We're not, we don't do data mining. We're not a big data company. Um, we don't have to monetize data in any way. We don't have to monetize eyeballs. All we have to do is make a product that people like so much that they pay money for it when they don't have to. Um, and um, what that does is it really lets us focus because we have no conflict of interest. We just focus on making the best possible user experience of the Evernote service. And I think one way that that's reflected in the developer community is I think we have no conflict. We have no conflict of interest with our developers. You know, if somebody writes an app. Uh, you know, an app that uses the Evernote API, that uses you know Evernote accounts, that that takes people's eyeballs away from Evernote apps. That's fine with us. Like we have no conflict. We're not losing any money, which isn't true for for some of the you know some of the bigger uh, companies with, with with successful public APIs. You know, they do have a as great as they are, they have a fundamental conflict of interest. You know, Twitter. If if somebody makes a Twitter app that you know takes away a large number of people from Twitter's official apps, their ability to monetize is decreased. 
what do you think about the whole, you know, Michael Arrington wrote a piece recently that, you know, Web.2, the, the promise of Web 2.0 and, and open APIs and mashups is, is failing. Everything seems to be contracting inwards and the user is now losing out. No, what's, fail, what's failing are, is at, at, you know, advertising supported business models. Mm. Um, because, you know, the whole, the big lie of advertising is that, oh, no, no, it's going to be so well directed and so good that it's going to be a positive experience. People are going to seek it out. And that's just not the case. That's why whenever you have advertising business models, even though there's plenty of companies that make a lot of money on it, it's fundamentally, there's fundamentally a conflict of interest and there's fundamentally, a, you know, there's a finite pie. It's like whoever has the eyeballs is going to be making the money. And so uh, in that sense, there's a, there's a conflict between the platforms, the developers, the advertisers, the users, that they don't all want the same thing. Um, and we don't have that. So what we actually look at our, our revenue per user uh, which all comes from you know premium subscriptions. We're a freemium model. Uh, our most profitable users are ones that use our third-party API apps. So, even though they're using apps that take their take their attention away from official Evernote apps, they're still using Evernote, and we make more money from them because they're they're more engaged, they're more active, they're more likely to get value out of the premium subscription. So I think we're I think we have this, you know, we have this model which is very simple, uh, and it lets us it lets us completely avoid conflicts of interest. What it you know the downside of it is that it's slower to grow because it doesn't. There's no tricks in it. There's no. There's no little you know viral or social hooks. Um, but the upside is there's also no conflict. Uh, so it's just a model that 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 I prefer. Phil, I really appreciate your time. I know you uh, pushed for time, and uh, you, you do uh, need to head soon. I'll just I'll just end on on one of your comments when someone asked you. Uh, what your um, main competition to Evernote is, and you said the main alternative to Evernote is leading a miserable, unproductive life and being sad <laughs> all the time. Well, that was, that, you know, yes, that, that's, that was me before I started using it, so I stand by that statement. <laughs> Phil, I really appreciate your time. I look forward to, uh, you know, showing you around Sydney sometime, and um, thanks for joining us on the podcast, and uh, it was really great to talk to you. Hey, thank you. I'm going to take you up on that offer, and uh, uh, when I decide when when I'm going to be in Australia, I'm going to need people to 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 take me to all the best uh, eating and drinking spots. So I'll, I'll I'll look you up. It will be an absolute pleasure. Thanks, and have a good day. Take care. Bye. <laughs>